Everyone, welcome back to the Leadership Locker. I have a treat for you today, but look, you're still in the right place. You're in the right place if you're a new entrepreneur, aspiring entrepreneur. If you are a seasoned veteran in the entrepreneurial space, you know the problems are always going to come, and that's why I have some of these fantastic guests on on Wednesdays. On Mondays and Fridays, you will hear me documenting the journey or sharing learning lessons, uh, things that I've encountered and learned from because I know we are always learning because we're always encountering problems, and we're lifelong learners. So that's what this podcast exists for. Now, now let me get into my guest, Gianna Biscontini. Okay. First of all, it was fantastic. I interviewed Chris Doe and then I drove about a half hour, didn't hit any traffic. And I went to her place and we got set up in her quiet room or her meditation room. And we had our podcast. We hit it off because she has two rescues, okay? Both of them are from Mexico, dogs, that is. The rescue I have is from Mexico as well. She also had moved to LA from San Diego. I had lived in San Diego for a while as well. And all of a sudden, you know, like, this is just like that amazing rapport that you build with someone, you know, just before an interview. And it's my favorite, favorite, favorite part of doing interviews in person is because you can just kind of feel the connection. As a matter of fact, we were DMing after or a day or two later and just saying like, man, we could have talked for hours. And that is the absolute truth. Now, what the hell could we have talked about for hours? It's not just, uh, you know, the things that we had in common and traveling and all these other things. It was about behavior. Now, she spent two decades of working in the field of human behavior, and she has gone far, far deeper than many of us ever will. Uh, So in her business endeavors, she likes to say that her client relationships are built upon humor and honest and respect and have proven to be the most fulfilling. Uh, She's treated children with autism for many, many years, and then she pivoted. She's coached Navy SEALs and supporting organizations to help them take get better care of people. Okay, she's a founder at Workwell. It's a female-owned, science-based, well-beings analytics company, and she was going to get into why they did analytics and not consulting. There's a difference. Okay, she's also been a photographer, a model, a researcher, ballerina, clinician, cheese factory worker. I mean, like, this is her trying to be funny, but look, there's something about people with this type of energy that is automatically interesting, but I never would have discovered her if it wasn't for a former guest, Steven Shedleski. Okay, and he is the chief Ignite officer over at Simon Sinek, Team Sinek. And I'm so, so grateful that he introduced us because it was fantastic. Okay, it was absolutely fantastic. We cover a lot of different aspects of human behavior. We talk about depression, we talk about pressure, if you're in entrepreneurship, you are unbelievably familiar with pressure. You can't fucking tell me otherwise. That's just the way it is. We talk about all of it. And then we eventually talk about her manuscript. But we talk about leadership. We talk about pressure. We talk about kind of cresting the hill is how I always like to call it. Kind of climbing out and up. We talk about focusing. We talk about meditation. And look, science-based, okay? Science-based, like you can hear in the manner in which she articulates the information. I think she was doing me a favor by talking at a, at a level that a Marine, a retired Marine would understand, but you can absolutely tell, absolutely tell that this is science-based and that she's coming from a unbelievably deep, deep, deep understanding of human behavior. Uh, like I said, that most of us will never come to understand, but it is people like her that are going to help you and I become better leaders for the people that decide to join our teams, for the people that are lateral to us, for the people that we desire to help. Understanding human behavior is something that we can just never ignore. 
And that's why she was on the show. So here we go from Los Angeles with Gianna. So uh, we got the good intro out of the way. Thank you for having me. I love to begin at the beginning, and I don't know a single behavioral scientist. Uh, so for the listeners, um, you know, entrepreneurs, small business owners, what is a behavioral scientist? So I'm a, my full title is board certified behavior analyst. Um, I see a lot of like people scientists or behavior scientists these days, but they don't have a scientific background. Um, and so that's a really strong delineation yeah. I like to make from the beginning. Um, so a behavior analyst, essentially, um, they have a master's degree and they take a board certification comparable to the bar. Really difficult and arduous and very painful to study for. Um, and so most of our field is not really that well known because they work in the field of autism and healthcare. And so uh, what we do, applied behavior analysis is a subset of what we do. That's really the gold standard treatment for children with autism. However, there is another piece called organizational behavior management, which includes leadership and culture, um, behavior-based safety and performance management. And so I went from one to the other and that's really where I live. And so, but our work is all the same. And we're really, really good at uh, assessing an environment because we know the play that the environment has on our behavior Mm -hmm. and what that bidirectionality looks like. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's really what sets us apart from other consultants or advisors or people that might do similar work Mm -hmm. in in our spaces Mm -hmm. um, is that we can analyze an environment and understand how that influences human behavior. When you set out to do this, what was your specific goal in taking it on and being like, this is what I want to do for this group of people? Yeah, and so I was in the field of autism for about 10 years, um, worked my way up the, the healthcare ladder to leadership positions, and I um, just really hit my own ceiling. I, I was kind of doing the same thing all the time, and, and I wanted to grow, and I wanted to, to grow outside of our industry. It's really small. And so um, I quit clinical about four years ago, it was four years ago in June, and traveled throughout Europe because nice. that was my promise oh, well, to myself. Hold on a no, well, hold on. Now we have to take a detour. Um, <laughs> You're sure you want to do this because yes, yeah, I can talk all day. Yeah, um, same here. So um, just give me three places uh, during that trip that are just stuck in your mind for the, the best of reasons, of course. Berlin. Okay. I had the best day of my life in Berlin. Okay. <laughs> um, I would say um, Lisbon. And oh, okay. Space, we stayed in Portugal. Um, and, oh my gosh, what is that? Marbella um, on the coast of Spain. Mm. Yes. We have a really funny story of like getting stuck on a human cargo ship going to Morocco <laughs> and not making it back and all, all those fun travel stories. Okay. So yeah, I'm excited. Spain, Berlin, and, and Lisbon, I would I, say. I can't wait to talk to you about Europe <laughs> after this. Okay, but, <laughs> but we'll get back. So um, if I understand correctly, you kind of hit your own personal ceiling, which is something I love to hear people say. Uh, it wasn't a ceiling that you felt like you needed to break or go get a certification or something extra to break. So you made this decision on your own. Uh, but okay, so you pivoted and then what was uh, the beginning? What was the undertaking at the beginning? Um, so when I was traveling throughout Europe, I noticed just the different quality of life yeah. and the lifestyle is very different. I'd been to Europe a ton before, um, but there was something different about this time. And when I came back, I had started my own behavioral pediatrics process, um, my, my practice. And after about a month, I thought, you know, why am I just doing the same thing that I was doing before, but on my own terms, right? Working with children and doing all that. And I thought, you know, 
behavior analysts can work anywhere behavior exists. Mm -hmm. And so what problem do I want to solve, right? What do I want to go attack? What do I want to go pioneer? How do I want to take this science that's so useful and so um, underutilized? What do I want to go do with it? Why is it underutilized? I'm sorry. I, I, I have to ask like interrupting questions no, like that. No, I, I adore it. I uh, love questions. Um, not many people know the science behind human behavior. And so they'll say, well, we do research with our employees and we, everything is based on research, but it's really just surveys, right? And surveys are really subjective sure. because, you know, you woke up in a different mood today than you might have a month ago, than you might have six months ago. And there's there's confirmation bias. There's, you know, demeaning characteristics. There's all these things that if you're really using the scientific method of inquiry and of research and of data collection, you get a much more accurate picture sure. than if you come in and just kind of intuitively throw spaghetti over a wall. It's very costly. And so there's a process of human behavior. There's a science to it. There's a process of scientific inquiry, how you arrive at, at answers. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I found in my own businesses uh, is that when I use this science, the, the issues are so accurate that you end up saving a ton of time and money. The reason why it's underutilized is because people don't really know about it and because it's a little slower on the front end, right? There's no magic pill to say, well, we're going to hire, you know, a huge consulting company. They're going to come in and do a canned leadership and culture training, and then they're going to go, right? We come in and we measure and assess and assess and measure. And uh, it's really important to us that when we leave, you understand what the ROI was. We came to do what you needed us to do. And what does the ROI look like for, uh, now I'm just like being completely business curious. So if my organization's thriving, we're, we're at 100 people, which is like a dream, like, wow, we're operating on so many cylinders, but I see that there's an issue, we get in contact, you come, what's my ROI, so to speak? So the first thing that I always ask um, new clients is, what does your victory lap look like? Sure. What does success look like for you, right? And that's great. Um, however, when I started my company Workwell, we actually were going to be a consultant's company. I, I We're going to be a consultancy. I assumed there was a good assessment out there that we could just buy and use. And I, the Myers-Briggs and the DISC and all these other, like, I mean, pardon me, but they're jokes. Yeah. They're a, it's a joke. <laughs> and so when we were looking into all these assessments, I was like, really? This is the, what, this is what's out there? And so I said, all right, crew, now we're an analytics company. And so we went through health, business, and behavior research and identified, I mean, from a well-being standpoint, but it's cyclic, you know, it's involved in everything. What dimensions of culture are there and what do we need to look at? And when I started my company, I accidentally became the face of it. And I was on podcasts (laughs) and I was on stages and I was like, okay. Um, And people were really curious. And I always would ask people, how do you define culture? And they would say, well, I think it's... Or, well, we define it as this. And I said, you know, if you don't have a baseline definition of something, it's a problem because you can't change or measure something that you can't define. And so we define culture behaviorally, the process of behaviors that are reinforced or punished across any given person and any given environment and any given time over time, right? We're creating a culture between us right now. If I make a funny joke, I can kind of test your sense of humor. Um, We know where each other, where we're from. We like to travel, right? We're creating this culture between us of, you know, after a couple hours together, I'll know what is likely to be reinforced and punished with you on a high level, what to say, what not to say. Um, And we do this at work all the time. And so we created our own work well index. We created an assessment. So if you were to come to me and say, hey, you know, our, our retention is terrible. Um, people are really stressed out. People are leaving because they're stressed out and we want you to help us. 
that's circular reasoning, right? People are leaving because they're under stress, they're under stress, and then they're leaving, right? It doesn't really end up as a solution. So our assessment actually identifies stress-inducing variables in the environment across attention and focus, performance and growth, leadership, diversity and inclusion, thought diversity, across all these different planes, so that when we get the assessment back, we can say, yes, um, your people are disengaged, stressed out, and burnt out. Here are the three components of burnout. Cynicism, performance decline, and physical exhaustion. Here's where they are, right? Here's how you can fix that. And here's what's causing that stress, right? And I would say, I think we took a a data collection measurement a couple years ago. About 76% of the time, what leaders came to us for saying that needed to be fixed was wrong. I have to ask this. If there was a bigger piece of the pie and some of the causal factors that you're discussing in terms of burnout, how much of it does it reflect on the leaders of the organization? And and do they take ownership when you present that to them, if you present it to them? Nearly 100% and nearly 0%. <laughs> Unbelievable. So, so how do you have that conversation? Rich, you're, sorry, fucked up. Like, you, you, gotta, you gotta fix this. So this is why I love data. Because if I say, Rich, your culture's fucked up. Yeah. It's not my opinion, right? I'm not coming in and saying, I believe that this culture is wrong and that you have screwed something up because that makes it very emotional and that you dig your heels and nobody wants to be talked to that way. Nobody wants to be um, confronted that way, but we can take measurable data and say, here is where the stress and engagement and burnout of your company is, and here's why. Um, And, you know, I don't point fingers. I say, here are the numbers, let's fix it, right? And so when you can point to a graph and say, you know, here is the perceived trajectory of where this company is going as far as retention costs or, you know, people like numbers, especially CFOs, you know, then you can get to some real numbers and some measurable ROI. But when I sit down and talk with leaders, they really seem to appreciate the data Mm -hmm. um, because it's not something that I made up. I didn't make up the science of human behavior. I can say what a, a 100 years of research into human behavior tells us is that if this trajectory continues, here's what you're likely to see. And here's how to address this and fix this in a low-cost way and high visibility, high-cost way, maybe lower visibility, proximity rise. We, we do a priority matrix. Yeah, say, yeah. Here's the free, fast stuff you can do right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's the more costly stuff that takes more time. And we, we help the client build a process. Now, I do like to begin at the beginning. So I was reading one of your blogs, and I'm going to shift here a little bit. And uh, you opened up about trauma and about depression, and you've been living with it. You got down to 89 pounds, which I was like, oh my God, my eyes popped out of my head. And um, the interesting fact was you understood a lot of what was happening, but you were, for whatever reason, incapable of kind of climbing out. The reason I wanted to bring that up was For business owners and entrepreneurs, as you know, the pressure is extreme at some times. You know, it could mean the difference between going out of business or staying in business or keeping the lights on or feeding your children or whatever it may be, or looking like a fool to everyone around you who doubted you from the beginning. When there is that much stress induced on a regular basis, um, how, how do you confront what is needed to climb yourself out of that hole, even if you're recognizing exactly what it is? You know, we we sit in emotional states and we sit in logical states, and they do not occur at the same time. 
So I was really, really fortunate to read a book called Into the Magic Shop by neuroscience Dr. James Doty years ago. And I learned about the brain, stress, trauma, anxiety, mindfulness, all of that. And so when I was going through trauma, not only the pandemic and societal injustice and all of the things that we went through as as a world, but my father passing away and me getting really, really sick and all of that, I just became very, very aware that now was not the time to push, to make decisions. I think we have that natural fear of being uncomfortable and fear of the unknown. Mm -hmm. And I credit my my recovery and pivots and everything I've done since with meditation. Mm -hmm. I truly believe it's the foundation to anything because this isn't about some, you know, fit woman on a meditation pillow in a mansion, like calmly sitting by herself. And I'm so glad you said that. I was about to go further into it, but go ahead. Right. This is about rewiring your brain and cortical specificity and, and neuroplasticity and all of that. And so it allows you to be in this emotional shitstorm of upheaval and to not be numb to it, to notice it, but not to judge it and make it worse. Mm-hmm. And to sit in a place that's highly uncomfortable and say, this is really uncomfortable and this sucks. And here I am. And not try and run away from it. We eat too much. We drink too much. We buy shit we don't need. We you know, enter coping skill here. Um, some people run and exercise and do really healthy things and talk to their support systems. And some of us go in the opposite direction. Some of us do both. Yeah. And so... I learned to sit in those really uncomfortable moments. And I think for leaders, especially male leaders, right? Males are extremely generally analytical. They want to go from point A to point B as efficiently as possible. And when you get uncomfortable and you don't know an answer, generally for males, that's very uncomfortable. I yeah, really we don't answer. ask for directions. Right, exactly. I got it. I got it. And then three hours later, you're like, we could have made 10, I 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I refuse to be lost. So I ask. Okay. But yeah. Exactly. But going along with this metaphor, when you are lost and you say, I'm lost right? At least you have the choice. I'm actually going to just take a detour and have an adventure and learn. And I'm going to sit in the fact that I have no idea where I am right now, but let's look around and see what's here. Or who's got the map, right? When you can sit in that moment, there are so many more options and so many more lessons. And it, it that emotional upheaval turns into logic. I'm not challenging. Uh, Please do. You are, or whatever. I, I guess... I'm the type of person who believes in those moments when I get into my modes or sad or frustrated or whatever it may be, I always find that movement is the key, right? Like got to move. But what I'm hearing from you is saying like, dude, you can sit in it though. And that's equally as good medicine. And that for me is completely, you know, I'm, I'm not seeing it, right? So For people who may have solutions, or at least they think they're solutions to some of these issues or these weeks or tombstone days, I like to call them. Talk to me a little bit more about the sitting with it, though, when when they know there's other options. Like, how do I know that's going to make me feel better or come out stronger on the other side? So let me clarify. By by sitting in it, I mean, I mean literally sitting and, and meditating. But I mean, we incur an aversive stimulus and we avoid it. There are four reasons humans do anything. Yeah. Escape or avoidance, attention, access to tangible items, food, money, clothes, um, and automatic reinforcement. Sure. 
Do you just do it because it feels good and it's not socially mediated? Um, but when we have that aversive stimulus of fear and, oh my gosh, I can't pay my bills, we avoid it. And that's the eating, drinking, you know, we distract ourselves. Yeah. By sitting it, I mean, it might be sitting Except down. acknowledging. Right, looking it in the face instead of running away. Now, I'm a huge proponent of movement. And so yoga and all of that, all that movement is to prepare the body to sit. I right. see. I, mean, I, I equate it to like when I was working with kids. It's like, okay, get all your wiggles out. We're going to run around and then we're going to sit and focus, right? And you need both. And so when I talk about, you know, don't run away and sit in it, it's becoming aware of when I'm uncomfortable, what do I do? What are my escape routes? Do I obsess about work? Do I go drink? Do I go try and hang out with my friends? Do I go for a run? What are those things? And becoming more aware of them. Because yes, running and, and yoga and going for walks and movement. Yes, I dance, I shake. I absolutely love it. But eventually, you know, we're humans and we need some sort of contemplative experience to sit and to actually think. Because otherwise, it's like being on a train going 200 miles an hour. You're going to get there really quickly and move past that point, Mm -hmm. but you don't see the view. You don't, if somebody said, tell me about your trip, you'd have no idea. It was all blur, right? You just slow down the train and go, there are the Alps, right? Um, And then you're like, okay, there are the Alps. I've seen the beauty of this moment. Now I can move the train forward. I'll share something with you that's personal. And I mean, some, maybe some of the people who've listened have heard it, but when I was at a job that I absolutely hated, I, I coped by making some big time shortcuts at work, you know, that I knew I wasn't going to get caught. I was taking risks. I was drinking heavily. And I mean, being in the Marine Corps forever, like drinking is just like it uh, until I started doing this podcast. And then I showed up drunk to one of them. Uh, well, it was a previous podcast. They never knew. They thought it was an amazing podcast. I was sweating bullets like, they're going to smell this. I eventually, and I've tried to stop many times, but it just clicked. At that moment, I was just like, I'm done. Next thing I know, I was like, oh, it's been 40 days. It's been 60 days. Like, well, I guess I'm just going to stop. Okay, but the bad part is it took something catastrophic, in my opinion, to happen. I almost completely and utterly sacrificed my reputation, my character at work before I quit. Uh, the podcast and all these other things, when we bury and we cope in all these different ways you're talking about, uh, can you talk about the risk of it coming to a boiling point and what might happen? And it might not be breakout, but it just might be a severe plunge into the dark side of mental health. Absolutely. And first of all, thank you for your sacrifice and thank you for sharing. Um, Jeffrey Pfeffer out of Stanford wrote a book years ago called Dying for a Paycheck. And the title is a little dramatic, but he's a genius. Um, he's got these algorithms for, to figure out what are the top 10 variables at work that decline mental and physical health. Lack of autonomy and control is one of them, right? We're humans. We're not really built to wake up and look to everyone else and go, what can I do for everyone else today? And by the way, tell me how to do it, when to show up and when to go home and when to sacrifice the rest of my life for you. We like to control some things. We have ideas. We want to be heard. We want to belong. We want to be included. We want community. And when we don't have those things, when there are unjust decisions that are made, when there's a lack of autonomy and control, when obviously you're not making the money that you should be, when you don't feel valued, those things can cause you to almost spin out of control. It's called counter control, right? And so when you lose control and I tug the rope this way as your leader, what do you do? You tug the rope back. Maybe it's not tugging my rope, but it's tugging a rope. I'm going to drink. I'm going to do this. And we kind of grasp for control in other parts of our life. And that's kind of when you see that. And, you know, I would say there are people who maybe drink a little bit too much and drive home and wake up and say, I'm never doing that again and don't. There are people with 12 DUIs who don't stop until they unfortunately kill someone. And so our consequences, our powerful consequences are different for everyone. Everybody's got a different rock bottom 
moment, right? Or that decision, whether it's stopping drinking, leaving a relationship, leaving a job, just making a decision, right? We can only get pushed so far and everyone's different. And so when people get to that dark space, I think that's what's in it. That's when it's important to number one, sit and to say, what is this dark space about? What is my part in it? What do I control? What don't I control? Who can I talk to about this? And really start to dig in to tease those things apart because you can really only avoid for so long. Avoidance is temporary, right? Escape is pretty temporary Mm -hmm. unless you leave the job and say, you know what? I don't need this. And you leave and you go do something better. But if you are in that situation where you have to keep this job, you, you have to stay in the relationship, you have to stay in the city, whatever's pulling at you, it's pressure and pressure and pressure. And those moments, it's not the pressure that hurts us. I mean, it is stressful to be in a stress response for that long and your body is releasing all these, you know, Mm -hmm. stress hormones. But it's what we do. It's the overt behavior, right? It's harmful enough to have that cortisol running through us and that allosthetic stress response for a long time. We're not built that way. It's, it's adaptive in spurts when we're running from tigers in the cavewoman days. Now, our bodies can't tell if we're running from a tiger or dealing with the bad boss. And our bodies don't care. And so, you know, this very adaptive thing where it's like, I need the fight, flight, or freeze. Whew, that's five minutes. I'm away from the tiger. I can live another day. Congratulations to me. We stay in that running from the tiger response all the time. Yeah, I think uh, someone I interviewed said freezing is when you oscillate between fight or flight. Like when you freeze, like he just mentioned that. And I thought it was kind of interesting that it's like you just kind of go back and forth with them. It's, it, there's not a traditional response that you usually undertake. Or, or it's paralysis, right? Yes. It's literally paralysis. Yes. It's like someone holding a gun to your head and saying, like, what's two plus two? And you're like, I don't know. You know it's <laughs> yeah. like everything stops. Um, and so, you know, in those moments, I, I say, like, stress and pressure needs to stop being rewarded. It's a social currency of how much we work and how much pressure we're under and how much stress we're under. We go, you just do it all. You know, you do everything. How do you do it all? And we reward it and it becomes a social currency. But stress is a response to our environment. And it's a signal to us that something is in need of attention. So if you are someone listening to this podcast right now who's thinking, I'm in a really dark place, it's okay to be in a dark place. You're human. You're a human being, not a human pretending. And so... I would encourage you to find a safe space, whether it's a person or a place, um, and think about that and start to tease it a little bit, whether it's therapy, whether it's talking to a spouse or a partner, because we can only really sit with that for so long. When you own a company or you're running a business and you have people, quote unquote, under you, you were just talking a little bit about, you know, reinforcing bad behavior. So you didn't say those exact words, but what happens when I'm rewarding or any business owner is rewarding people who are hustling, like kind of staying, doing the extra things, like, you know, messaging you after work, sending you an email, hey, I did this this weekend. Like, it's easy to reward those because you feel the commitment and a kind of loyalty to what you're trying to achieve. But at the same time, that may dismiss my notion of, you know, making sure their mental health and self-care is intact. So how do you balance that? Yeah. I mean, when I was running my team in the healthcare setting, I I had this woman who went out on maternity leave, came back after a month and was blowing her numbers out of the water. And she was making the company a bunch of extra money. And I sat her down and I said, stop, go be with your child. This is not sustainable. Right. I could have said, wow, I can't believe that you had a child a month ago and you're back here crushing numbers above people with zero children um, and all the time in the world. But we know reinforcement and punishment. Mm-hmm. 
And so if I were to reinforce that behavior, she would likely continue to do it. But then eventually, months down the road, I would be having a conversation of her leaving because she's, you know, it's not sustainable or her resenting me for reinforcing her and for pushing her. This is a leadership call, right? It's leadership needs to see the long game right? Not the short game of just carry another day, carry another day, keep doing another day. There are sprints and then there are breaks. And I think we all have to redefine our definition of what hard work looks like and being good at your job looks like. Because to reward behavior like that, working nights, weekends, and just never stopping goes against everything we know about performance and the human body and the brain. And so when we reward that behavior, we're going against all logic. And so I had her put, I actually gave her a performance goal of putting two hours in her schedule every single week. I said, please do not go above these hours. You do not need to. The company does not need those dollars that badly. We're going to step you back up as you step into having a babysitter. And I put a couple hours a week in her schedule. Um, And we did a whole values assessment with her. And I said, you know, what do you really enjoy? What are the things that decrease your stress? It ended up being um, reading with her newborn baby and going for a walk. And so I said, great. Those are your two replacement behaviors for work. If you're going to stop doing something, you have to start doing something else. Yeah. And it has to be functionally equivalent. Um, she really enjoyed her work. And I said, great, go do something else you really enjoy. And it's functionally equivalent. And it made her better at her job. This is embarrassing. I'm, I'm buying a house in Annapolis and I'm doing a renovation inside. And I'm spending a lot of extra money on the bathroom because some of the best ideas I've had is when I'm taking a bath, when I'm taking a nap, or when I'm going for a walk or a run. I have tripped and fallen and yard sailed because I needed to stop in the middle of a run and to pull my phone out and write down an idea, right? And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very simple switch, but it's almost like, um, it's almost too logical. All right, everyone, we're going to take a quick break to identify the sponsor, Rocket Station. I'll talk to you about them in a minute. I'm sitting here wondering if you heard the dogs barking (laughs) during the interview. And if you didn't, you probably will uh, because they step it up quite a bit, but hopefully not. Um, Look, that's just how it is. Like, what am I going to do? Say, we got to get out of here. Can you go shut them up or anything like that? No, they're awesome. They're dogs. Dogs bark. Dogs want to hang out with their mom. And that's just the way it is. So uh, sorry if you hear that. But look, she and I were talking about business uh, after the podcast a little bit. And it's just really funny thinking about how much how many things go into the business and how much we take on uh, that we, we feel the need to and how much you probably just have to. But at some point, at some point, you need a relief valve. And that relief valve comes in the form of help, people help, okay? And in my case, and in your case, hopefully virtual assistants. And I hate using that word because they can be whatever you need them to be. I use Rocket Station. I interviewed their CEO a long time ago. I love their COO. Every single person I've ever dealt with on that organization has been unbelievably professional and completely dedicated to help. Now, what Rocket Station does, they're based out of Dallas and they have international VAs. What they do is they help you offload all the bullshit. Okay, all the things that you need relief from because they are time consuming because your business is growing or because it's stagnant and you need it to grow and you can't because you're doing too many things is exactly why you would look into someone like Rocket Station. Now, I've mentioned it before in other podcasts, but here is a difference between them and someone you could find on Upwork or Craigslist or from a friend or whatever. Number one, they're far more affordable. Number two, even if you find someone somehow more affordable than them, especially if they're international, there's no oversight. There's no oversight. It's you and them. I have guardrails. 
She has someone that stays in touch with her and with me. Sometimes we have meetings together to check on progress, to talk about performance, to talk about everything. You don't get that somewhere else. And then over that, you have the entire kind of personnel team and there's an operations manager who kind of sticks through for the first 90 days to make sure everything's going well. Now, the biggest part of this is at the beginning of the process, before you're even interviewing people, is you have a process mapping, which means you're gonna talk about all the shit that you don't wanna do anymore, all the shit that you wanna offload, and they're gonna draw it out in a process document for you or documents. Okay, at the end of the show, I will give you the email and how to set up an appointment to talk to them and how you get 25% off. Invest in yourself, to me, is no longer uh, getting you know clothes or a cool car or upgraded computer. Investing in myself means investing in someone who's gonna help me grow the business. And if you listen to my episode with Gary Vee, he says it very specifically, people are not willing to hire help because they're gonna make a few thousand more this month when they're actually gonna make a lot less over the course of a decade. Hire the help and you will 10X, 20X, who knows, in the next decade. Get the help now, listen at the end for who you can write, who you can reach. I've read in one of your posts about self-care doesn't have to be expensive, something or words to that effect. And I was like, I'm so glad Someone said it. You know, we kind of talked about it earlier with the yoga and the meditating at a mansion, but projecting self-care is not self-care. So can you talk to me about how to dispel the notion of, of spending to look like you're taking care of yourself when you're actually not? Yeah, I love candles and sweatpants and loungewear as much as the next person. However, when you look up the definition of self-care, it's something that you do to improve your health and well-being. And so while products can support that, I made the point that spending hundreds of dollars a month on shit that you don't need is not going to lead to a sustainable improvement in your health. If magazines truly wanted to help us take care of ourselves, they would be selling us coaches and therapists. And, um, you know, I see ways to set boundaries here and there. Um, but you know, these are the things that we have to, I I think that self-care comes from self-love, right? So if, if you're my boss and you're stealing my time well beyond what I'm paid to provide, and it's stressing me out and it's making me a a worse friend and daughter and partner, my self-love has to shine through. My self-respect has to shine through. And I need a way, I need supports to be able to go to you and to tell you what I need. And I think that that is the problem. I might avoid that out of fear, right? Oh, you're my boss and you're going to think this and that. Yeah, but so at the same time, if I have no concept of self-care, I'm not going to be able to even hear what you're saying. Which is why I work with leaders. Um, and not the employees. Because I started working with HR um, teams and, and I wanted to work with employees doing the, the very impactful boots on the ground work. And I realized leaders wouldn't invest in me because they didn't, they didn't access those feelings sure. and those experiences themselves. And I said, great, whenever I get asked to take on a client, I'm gonna have some executive coaching in there. And I spun it into a whole other side business of executive coaching from a well-being perspective because once you've experienced something and you've accessed stress reduction, more joy, all of that, you say, 
oh, now I understand. Because you have to make it tangible for someone. It's experiential. Yeah. And so, you know, when companies would say, well, we're providing all this, um, you know, free lunches and yoga to our people, and that's our well-being program, I said, so you're telling me that they have to come in an hour early to access the yoga, right? Yeah. Or, you know... The burden of well-being and self-care cannot be placed solely on the shoulders of employees. But the leaders do have to access that first to really say, I want to give this gift. This is what it means to me. I'm more productive. Oh, I get it. That wasn't just wasting my time. It was investing. It was resetting. It was neurophysiologically resetting my brain so I have more focus and I'm not stressed and distracted. Um, and so that's why I enjoy working with leaders because that's how I can affect the rest of the company. When people contemplate self-care and I say, I'm going to take more care of myself, I'm going to invest in myself, I'm going to walk an hour a day every day or whatever it may be. I know we just talked about spending money, but what are some maybe trends that you see where people think what they're doing is self-care and maybe it doesn't even look destructive or anything like that, but that that's actually missing the mark. And I know it's probably you know, specific to each person, but is there any trends you see where people are like, this really actually doesn't help you? I know you think it does, but it doesn't. Yeah, I would tie it back to the over-purchasing, right? The over-purchasing, not only, you know, we see it an Instagrammable photo shoot and somebody holding like, you know, they're in some mansion and they look very relaxed and you're like, I want that. You know, ask any marketing person what they sell. They sell a feeling and a lifestyle, not a product. <laughs> yeah. And so you say, I want to feel that way. Or I want to be that beautiful. Or I want to be that relaxed. And then you buy the product, right? And so this is why... The, the self-care thing irritates me because these companies are essentially selling a product that promises something that they can't possibly deliver in a sustainable way. You don't need the product. You need something way, way bigger and, and harder to obtain, and it comes from within. Mm -hmm. um, and so the things that I see people doing in their self-care, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to blow up any of the companies, but I think a lot of what I see people doing from a, like calling self-care, like getting a manicure or a pedicure, right? I love manicures and pedicures. I love feeling more attractive for a little bit. But guess what? Then I come home and nothing has changed. My health has not improved. If anything, sitting there for an hour and not being in front of my laptop is what helps me, right? Yeah. So why wouldn't I just go sit in a room like this in my meditation room? It's free. I can do it whenever I want. It doesn't depend on anyone else. And I can sit here for as long as I want and, and meditate or listen to a podcast or something else mm -hmm. or just or light some candles, right? Yeah. Or, or create another experience that actually truly reduces my stress and improves my health. And so... Yes, getting a facial, like all those things. And I also think it perpetuates the the narrative that women have to look a certain way, mm -hmm. right? Um, my self-care is looking like this, right? Like I just got out of a yoga class. I like threw some makeup on and like, you know, clothes that were lying on my floor. Not stressing about the way that I appear to the world is my self-care. You know, it's funny. I've been thinking from the male side of that to me, and I'm going to do a podcast about this at some point, but I believe there's a huge market for people making men feel like less than men, like because they aren't doing jujitsu in their spare time, you know, or because they're not working in their wood shop or going to the gun range. And I'm like, it's crazy. All these experiences I'm seeing, I'm like, why do you need to go practice disarming someone who's got a knife? Like, <laughs> like for the weekend, like, Oh, and you're also going to learn about finances and faith and all these other things. Like it's to me, it's just trash. So the same way what you're talking about, I feel it on the male side because I don't do a lot of those things and I'm proud of it. I'm like, yeah, OK, I, sorry, I don't have a wood shop. 
<laughs> I, I don't like to mow my lawn. I pay someone to do that for me because yeah. I like to work on what I'm working on. Well, and this all comes down to judgment, right? Yeah. I am finishing a manuscript on this exact thing. I was thing. just about to ask about it. <laughs> yes, go, go it. ahead. No, I have a manuscript. <laughs> Tell me about it. So I'm writing a book about the 10 narratives that women are given about what they should be, right? Mm -hmm. And in the beginning of the book, I say, look, this book is technically for anyone, right? We tell men, oh, don't cry, and you know, don't be such a be don't be such a girl, right? Anything like a girl is pejorative, and so essentially, a man could read the book as well. I talk to trans and non-binary people as well, but the book is written. I don't like to talk about things that I know th nothing about, sure. and so the book is written for you know males or females in America, and so it's going through this, you know, be soft, be silent, be likable, look a certain way. You know, I was on the phone with my publishing company this, this morning and they're like, tell me about the journey of writing. And I said, it was harrowing and depressing because you know, these things exist. Things have gotten better, but I wouldn't be writing the book if we were where we should be. And, and it keeps changing, right? And I feel like we're chasing this gender narrative where we're all, especially with social media, right? This judgment, and you're seeing these very curated images of what life is. I personally think liberating, it sounds like you too, I personally think liberating myself from that expectation of how things should look is a luxury. Yeah, you know, once we stop letting go of what things should look like or what it looks like for someone else and therefore it should look like that for us, it's a luxury. That is, yeah. that it's my self-care. It feels freeing. It feels liberating. It feels joyful. It allows me to be in a space where I can create and work, right? When I said I was writing a book, everybody's like, well, you need 100,000 followers. Publishers wouldn't even talk to me without 100,000 followers. And I had like 2,000 or something mm -hmm. right now. And so I did it as best as I could. I hired a PR company and then they were doing my social media and I got like, I don't know, an extra thousand followers. And I was like, I don't give a shit about this. Like, yeah. I don't, this is not how I want to live my life. And yes. so I'm doing hybrid publishing instead. Um, but it's this currency, you know, yes. what are we valuing? What are we rewarding? And what is it stealing from us in the meantime? I have 10 more hours a week now where I can <laughs> read and research and create and write instead of like, sometimes I'm just like, okay, I need to, here's a picture of me drinking my coffee with my dogs. Like, cause I need to keep this up for publishing reasons. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, I think we're just, our values are a little skewed um, and society, you know, publishing companies or whoever continue to reward it. And so I would say, if you want to spend your time on social media, building a presence and have a million followers, fantastic. But we all need to start thinking for ourselves. We are all different. We're like, we all have different fingerprints. We're all different humans. If you don't want to have a woodworking shop, you shouldn't feel like less of a man. Right? I don't. Yeah. We we need to redefine. It took what me it forever means. to get there, though. E exactly. But I got exactly. There. <laughs> and how did it feel once you did? My give a shit bubble <laughs> is perfect. Like, yeah. I just it, it explodes anytime anything is presented to me that I just don't care about. But that's my self care, by the way. Like, absolutely. I, it, it's this is for anyone to say no is one of the most important things that I've uncovered, you know, I, when I turned 40 last year, just be like, no. Like, I don't wanna go to the store, or I don't wanna, whether it's kids, or work, or anything. Or you wanna come over for the game. No, like, it's okay, I already know what I want. I think it's just a progressive uncovering of who you are that allows you to just get to that place we were just talking about, where it's just relief, satisfaction, and no exaggerated anything for anyone including social media. And how to be prepared when people don't like that change, right? When we're changing, we change the rules, we can incur a lot of resistance. Sure. And so the last part of the book is not only these 10 beliefs that women are given that you can choose to keep or give up and create more space for yourself to do things you actually do give a shit about. Um, the, the last part of it is 
how to understand the resistance that comes back to you when you start saying no. No, I don't really want to drink anymore. You don't? Oh, come on. Well, when you come visit, you have to drink. You get the pressure, right? People don't like that change. It's, it's anxiety-provoking. And then it kind of holds up a mirror to them, which is uncomfortable. Yes. It, it's projected back upon you. Big time. And so it's like, prepare for the haters, right? It's not their fault. It doesn't mean they're bad people. It means that you made a change that is somehow negatively affecting them, and that is theirs. It is not your problem to fix. It's not a bad thing. You can just re-gift it, right? Like, nope, that's yours, and keep on walking in your direction. I know that to be true. Like, the way I look at it and the way some of uh, my mentors kind of look at it is, obviously, you're doing something well because these people all of a sudden are intimidated by your commitment to not do something or to go after a big dream or whatever it may be. So... It's that kind of mirror or that projecting is is dead on accurate. We'll have to end here soon, but the last question I wanted to talk about was, uh, you talked about projecting expectations of mentally healthy people. Myself, probably other business owners, a lot of us who may be quote unquote better off in terms of mental health than others have the propensity to try and have those expectations for other people or why don't you do this? Or we try and fix it instead of listening, instead of just asking as many questions as possible and let them kind of weave their own way to the answer. How can we not project and how can we listen more? Although we want them to have what we have. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. As hard as the last two years have been, I have an odd gratitude for them because during those times where I was literally taking naps on my kitchen floor because I could not make it 50 feet to my couch, I thought, come back to this feeling when you work with people who are also in this space. Because you come out of it and you forget how hard it is, yeah. right? And you're like, just be positive, just yeah. fuck up. That yeah, toxic yeah. positivity that just squashes and diminishes the experience that the person is having. So I might want to go, come over here to this positive space and like be like me and I'll help you. You're not ready. You're not in that space. It's my job to come to you and to meet you where you are and to access my memories of going, yeah, I totally remember what it like, what it felt like not to want to be alive anymore. It made perfect sense to me at some place in my life. And I was like, wow. And you have to hold on. This is why those dark caves are worth exploring. Because if you really do want to impact people and be a good leader and help people in the future, no matter what you do, or be a better parent or spouse or whatever, friend, you need those experiences to relate to someone else. The toxic optimism and the toxic positivity doesn't get us anywhere. It makes the person feel worse. I had so many people that were like, just go meditate. And it was like capable, kind of. I mean, I was physically capable of sitting and breathing, but it felt so overwhelming. My willpower was so low. And so it's not up to leaders to, to reach into the hole and pull people out. It's up to leaders and to anybody who wants to help to go back into that dark cave with that person and just sit there. And not try and be positive and not try and fix and not try to offer advice that you would take right now because you're capable and they would probably take if they're in a better space. Um, And so I think it's perspective, connection, and relatability that we really need to work on in in those moments. One reason I asked that and just a thought that just went through my head as you wrapped up there was the inability to have empathy or to kind of recall those moments because we want to distance ourselves from them so much. Like it's almost like, I don't want you to go through that at all. So I'm not even going to bring it up. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just going to, I want you to pretend it doesn't even exist. So that way you're on the positive side. But yeah. So thank you so much for that. Uh, Can you tell us where we can find you and when we could expect your book out? 
Yes. Um, you can find me at giannabiscontini.com or workwell.com, W3RK, W-E-L-L.com. Um, and the book will be out probably February, March nice. of 2022. Well, we'll put some more of these clips out uh, as it gets closer then. So yes. thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And we'll see you soon. All right, everyone. So definitely, definitely check out Gianna. It's giannabiscontini.com. Uh, we'll also put her Instagram handle down there. I know you liked listening to her. Check out some of the clips I'm going to have on Instagram. You could find that my Instagram at richcardona underscore, which is also the place I'd like you to take a screenshot of your phone or listening to the podcast and tag me in it. Let me know that you're listening and please make sure you're sharing it with other people because that's how this podcast grows. Okay, that's how this podcast grows. But uh, definitely check Gianna out. I had such a good time talking to her. And uh, if you want to learn a little bit more about behavior, you will be able to find out about that, like I said, on her website or on Instagram. Uh, Last thing I'll say is it doesn't take long to leave a review. So I'm going to ask if you are enjoying this to leave a review. Okay, people love to see reviews, right? Everyone likes to kind of go to Yelp if they're going to go somewhere and be like, oh, let me see how many stars or let me see if I should get this or whatever. We have just a ton of five-star reviews and I'd like to keep it up with some substance, okay? Take the 60 seconds, go leave a review that has some substance to it so people understand what they're gonna be listening to and how you may have benefited from the content that you're listening to. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you is the last thing I wanna say because without you guys, without you, this wouldn't be happening. This wouldn't be happening and it is my absolute freaking pleasure to serve you. See you next week.